MUFON for quite some time. Since 1991. That's a long time. That's a good yes. career. Uh, you still liking working with MUFON? Yes, I do very much. You're also an experiencer as well. Yes. I, I meant to ask is I was always been curious, when was the earliest age that you remember uh, having an experience or something odd that happened to you? I believe that my first conscious memory of contact came when I was 17 years old. And my aunt, Betty Hill, was working with a team of scientists who were attempting to have her call in a craft through what we now call a CE5 experiment to land on my grandparents' farm. And I grew up across the street from my grandparents' farm. Well, one craft did come in in February of 1966. It landed on the farm. It was observed by two people. It was only 200 feet from my childhood home. And my mother and I retained conscious recall of finding ourselves on that craft. But I was never going to tell this story. Um, and I was going to take it to my grave as my mother did. But I through my work with thousands of experiencers of contact along the way uh, some people encouraged me to talk about my own experience uh, they thought it would help others and so with the interest of helping others uh, I decided to reveal a little bit that yes indeed I do have memories of an experience. My heart is with anybody who's an experiencer because how do you come to grips with reality afterwards, right? It's crazy. It's extraordinarily difficult because you're filled with fear. Um, you, you might have post-traumatic stress disorder or at least the syndrome. Um, it had a profound impact on my life and it recurred periodically throughout my life. It's no longer happening. And so right. uh, I'm, I'm happy about that. I have a different level of contact now uh, and probably with a different group. But uh, during those years where periodically I would be abducted, it, it was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, I had a I was in college, I was in graduate school, I had a career. Uh, first I studied psychiatric social work and then I went into education. And you know, just to have that disruption during the night was difficult when you had to get up at 5.30, 6 o'clock the following morning and, and work for the day and, and to have those memories. Because for me, it wasn't just uh, a dream memory or a, a little spotty piece of information I remembered quite a bit and, right. and it was it was pretty difficult 
Yeah, because you're trying to go about your day, but you have this recollection of what happened the night before. Um, that to me is just, I don't know how you guys do it personally. I, you know, my, my hat's off to you because that is something that you have to deal with in your reality that most people don't have to deal with. And you mentioned that you had a career and during that career, you never mentioned anything uh, about these experiences because you were afraid of what the repercussions were going to be. Absolutely. And I knew what my aunt and uncle Betty and Barney Hill went through at the hands of some very nasty disinformants who were connected, I believe, to the intelligence community and made their lives a living hell, attempted to destroy their reputations, to uh, retell their story in a way that was absolutely false. And this is why I decided to enter into the career that I'm in right now. Um, I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to uh, investigate what happened to my aunt and uncle, to go through all of the archival records, uh, to see what they said, what was documented, and to interview my aunt. And for years I did that. And and went to the area of New Hampshire where their UFO sighting and their close encounter took place and to where to the abduction site. And then to go back time and time again, measuring the distance, looking at the, the terrain, uh, knowing everything I could possibly know about that case. She gave me the hypnosis tapes. She and Barney had undergone hypnosis with a renowned neuropsychiatrist in Boston, Massachusetts for a period of six months in 1964. They did that because Barney was so distressed by his conscious recall of what had occurred that he had developed bleeding ulcers. He couldn't sleep. He had high blood pressure. He had a life-threatening condition. He was hospitalized and had to take a leave of absence from work. And so that's why he was referred. Betty went along with him. Dr. Simon hypnotized the two of them separately, and then he re reinstated hypnosis at the end of each session. There were two reasons for that. One reason was so that they couldn't share information and contaminate one another's story. The other was because each of them at different times during their hypnosis were so traumatized, so explosive, that if they were to remember that immediately and it couldn't be dealt with through therapy, it could cause them to experience even deeper trauma. So, uh, you know, that's, that's really, going on to the story of what happened to them. That was the truth. But what these uh, disinformants said is that uh, Betty's experience was uh, comparable to a day at the grocery store or at the supermarket. Um, they, they completely distorted that story, I found out through this extensive investigation that I did, and I'm determined to tell the truth now. 
that, that the public should know the truth and that Betty and Barney were harassed, their phone was tapped, their home was entered and weird things were done to uh, just cause distress for them. And it certainly wasn't fair. They didn't deserve it. They were good people, good citizens, honest people, churchgoers. So for, for the listeners um, that are new to the story of your aunt and uncle, can you describe what happened on that? I think it was September 17th, 1961, Sep- right? September 19, 1961. Betty and Barney had gone a few days earlier to um, from New Hampshire. They lived on the seacoast of southern New Hampshire uh, to Niagara Falls and over into Canada through Toronto, spent one night at Niagara Falls, another night in uh, Ontario. And then we're going to spend a third night in Montreal. But since a hurricane was coming up the coast toward New Hampshire, they decided to drive all night and and just stop at uh, some cabins if they grew tired along the way. So they were continuing on their trip, enjoying their um, vacation, when at about 11 o'clock at night, Betty saw a new star in the sky or a new light in the sky, really, that grew larger and larger and larger. And it had an unusual flight pattern. As it moved in on them over a period of about an hour, they noticed that this craft had unusual lighting, that it would hover in the air, that it appeared to be rotating, that it would bounce back and forth like a ping pong ball in the sky, that it would zigzag. Uh, And of course, their interest was drawn to this. What was this thing? They stopped a couple of times to look at it. And Barney was just anxious to, you know, let's get home, Batty. Uh, let's not uh, stop again uh, and take time to to look at this. But as they were traveling through Lincoln, New Hampshire on U.S. Route 3, uh, this craft swooped ahead over the highway and descended to within 200 feet of their car. Had to stop the car right in the middle of the road so that the Barney wouldn't park underneath the craft. And he stepped out and looked up at this thing. He had binoculars in his hands. He's looking up at it. Betty's looking at it through the window of the car. He steps away from the car for a moment and the craft then shifts to an adjacent field that has apple trees and a farm stand there. Uh, Barney follows it into the field and it now descends to within 100 feet of him. He puts the binoculars up to his eyes and he observes uh, figures that in the first reports in that September 1961 stated that he saw figures dressed in black shiny uniforms, that they were somehow not human. They frightened him greatly, especially when something started to drop down out of the bottom of the craft 
and little red lights on fins started to emerge from the craft. Barney felt that he was going to be, quote, captured like a bug in a net, close quote. That is when he pulled the binoculars from his eyes so forcefully that he broke the leather strap and ran back to the car screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be captured. As he was getting into the car, he noticed that the craft was now coming in his direction. He went speeding down the highway. He had left the car motor on, the door open, and uh, got in, started speeding down the highway. And within a few moments, less than a minute probably, uh, he and Betty heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of the car. What this did to the car was to cause it to vibrate and for a tingling sensation to pass through their bodies, like an electrical tingling sensation. And that's what we experiencers feel as well. Okay. Okay. It's very common. Do you feel that before like an abduction is going to happen? You can feel it before it's going to happen. Yes. And sometimes you can feel it when you're inside on the table as well. Very strong okay. tingling. Um, it, can, it, it can be felt when a healing procedure is being done. It can be felt when they're attempting to, to they say, raise your vibrational frequency to a higher level. Okay. Um, so, so it's common. It's just something that all experiencers tend to. Yes, that, all, that experiencers tend to feel. The next thing that Betty and Barney knew, they found themselves 35 miles down the highway with very little recall of what happened in the interim. They remembered finding themselves on a dirt road. They didn't know how they arrived there. They remembered encountering a roadblock. They didn't know what that was all about. And they remembered a fiery orb that appeared to be sitting on the ground, a red fiery orb. And then they find themselves on the road 35 miles down the highway. Betty turns to Barney and says, now do you believe in flying saucers? And Barney says, Betty, don't be ridiculous. I can make that sound because they heard a second series of these buzzing sounds. Okay. And so he stopped the car. He said, I'll prove to you I can do that with this car. He drove from one side of the road to the other. He couldn't make that noise. He couldn't reproduce that. And they just drove on home. They really had a longing for human contact, but nothing was open. And when they arrived home, they discovered that they were between two and three hours later than their anticipated arrival. So there was a lot of evidence uh, also. The you know, torn, Betty's torn dress, Barney's shoes that was so deeply scraped that he had to buy new shoes, uh, shiny spots on the trunk of the car that uh, were magnetized. Many wow. things and the watches they were wearing stopped operating and never ran again. A pink powdery substance grew on Betty's dress and uh, sort of destroyed, pitted the, the fabric of the dress. It's been 
this has all been investigated by scientists. Uh, there have been DNA studies and chemical analyses on Betty's dress in, I, I think it's now seven laboratories. Wow. And uh, yeah, and with a lot of new information that I have just published in the second edition of my book with Stanton Friedman, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. So this is the 60th anniversary edition with new updated information. The whole story is there. What happened, what they said under hypnosis, everything is there. So there was years and years of research for you. I mean, you were, what, 13 when uh, this incident occurred? I was 13, yes. And you started investigating at that age. Well, I was very curious. I was a smart kid and I was a curious kid. I loved doing research then just as I do now. Right. So I was there. Let me say I was there. I was a close family member. We, I saw my aunt and uncle once or twice a week. Right. And uh, so I, I saw the unfolding of this. I saw the impact it had on them. I had met almost all of the scientists who were working with them. Dr. Simon, I had dinner at Dr. Simon's house with Dr. Alan Hynek and John Fuller, uh, who wrote the first book, The Interrupted Journey, on their story back in 1966. You know, so I I was there. Yeah. Betty and Barney were sort of mentors to me. They were very good role models and and I loved doing the things that they did. In fact, I became in, interested in politics in high school. I was on the student council. Oh, really? Yeah, I was. And yes, and and I was invited to Lyndon Johnson's inauguration, as were my aunt and uncle, because they were politically involved. And yeah. so we went together, the three of us. It was a fantastic experience when I was in high school. I'll never forget it. And you are the leading expert on this subject. I mean, the the books that you've written, you've lived side by side and you've had an experience. Did it cement anything for you when you've had your experience at 17? Was it like something that you're like, it runs in a family? Do do you think it's it's an experience that that the family all experiences or is just really uh, you and your aunt and uncle? When this happened, when I was 17 and my mother was there too, I tried to explain it away. Let me give you my explanation, which sounds absolutely absurd, but I tried to explain it away as something was physically wrong with me. And since I was afraid of doctors, I didn't like going to doctors. My mother had arranged for doctors to come into the house and to do surgery on me in the middle of the night so I wouldn't know. That's what my young mind was trying to to use unless it was an implanted memory, a false memory implanted by the ETs. But, you know, my mother remembered it too. And uh, eventually Dr. James Harder from the University of California who was, uh, he was a civil engineer professor, and he was also uh, a a hypnotist. And he was a UFO abduction investigator. He was the lead investigator for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. 
And he came out and he uh, worked with me, my mother, with other family members. And he is the one who first discovered the uh, intergenerational line of contact in our family. Right. right. So do you remember what the abductions were about? Was it like, again, a lot of people are talking about breeding programs. Uh, some people are just saying it's just medical exams. Uh, were With your experiences, was it something that you remember what they were up to or just like glimpses of, of the experience? Uh, Dr. Harder gave me a post-hypnotic suggestion that would override uh, the memory block that they put on me. So I remembered quite a bit. And I, I had physical evidence as well. Uh, th on three occasions, I had witnesses to the craft. On one of those occasions, my neighbors were looking for me to show me the craft, but I was nowhere to be found. So, you know, oh, wow. that, that kind of thing. Um, but when I was in my 20s and 30s, uh, there were, it was more of uh, a reproductive experiment that was being done. Um, they take family lines because they are, it's easy to follow us, to see the progress that they're attempting to uh, instill in us as they attempt to upgrade us so that we will be less primitive. Okay. That's what they say. <laughs> and right. so, yeah, so there's this kind of thing um, that is going on. And I, you know, I've never, I have no memory of ever holding a hybrid baby. Right. I do have a memory of being taken to a room where I saw sort of these large domed tanks, like big, te huge test tubes, <laughs> you might say, uh, holding fetuses in various stages of development. I remember being shown that by my nice escort. I liked him. When I was taken, I was terrified. I mean, I'm unbelievable fear. But by the time I arrived on that craft, I felt like I was in a familiar environment and I was being greeted by this escort that I had a relationship with. Now, as I grew older, they began to give me information. Um, they would show me things on a screen. Um, they gave me the information that they were very concerned that uh, our technological development uh, is out of sync with our spiritual growth. And that because of this, we could endanger uh, our entire population and all life on this planet. So that's one of their goals is to, uh, in upgrading humans, to move us ahead on an evolutionary scale for our own survival. They gave, showed me images of uh, a barren planet. I don't know what that meant. I don't know if it was their planet or 
you know, I think that maybe they were showing me that other planets have uh, reached an end of end period where life can no longer exist. And they don't want that to happen here. They showed me water washing over the land. I don't know if that was a prediction of the tsunamis that we've had, if it was from the great flood dating back to Noah, or what that was. I'm I'm not certain in my mind. Um, Over time, they stopped doing the physical procedures on me, and they then seemed to focus entirely on healing me, on making me well, on raising my vibrational frequency. And in doing that, I developed certain gifts. And those are a psychic sense, the sense of uh, being able to feel another's emotions or the condition of the body as if I can it were my own. When I work with people now, uh, I can sometimes feel a part of my body that has a d- deep pain, but it's coming from them. It's that sense. And be, and they don't even have to tell me. I can just say, what's going on here? And, and they'll say, oh, yeah, well, I did, hadn't told you that. So I, and I'm high, I became much more spiritual than I ever was. Um, so I, I view those as being beneficial. And so I have deeper insight. I have knowledge of things that I was never taught on this planet. So that spirituality, I hear that theme quite a bit. It seems that, um, you know, people that, and it's not a spirituality of like, a, a, you know, you joined a religion per se. It's just you're a spiritual person. Um, and I hear that quite a bit from you know, other abductees, have you found that to be a common thing amongst the abductees that you have worked with as well? Yes. And in addition to those I've worked with, I've worked on three major uh, social studies on experiencers. Um, One was my own with Denise Stoner, uh, the Marden Stoner commonality study among abduction experiencers. We did that for a couple of years, ended in 2013. Then I went on and I was a research associate with the Edgar Mitchell uh, Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters. Uh, We did a very extensive research project with them. And then I did a third one uh, with the Mutual UFO Network with Dr. Don C. Don Derry from McGill University Psychology Department. He's recently retired and with Dr. Michael Austin Melton, and with uh, two MUFON members, as well, lay researchers like myself, even though I studied it in college. <laughs> so, uh, and we, we had 516 participants, and uh, we learned that the vast majority, something like 95% said that they became more spiritual as a result of these experiences. So everything I've told you about myself so far is a commonality that experiences right. share. Right. Yes. And it's and it seems to be like our technology and spirituality don't go together and that is again a common theme amongst abductees worldwide is that the technology that we have is is more destructive 
and we're not paying attention to our spiritual self, which is something that we've lost in the West. So it really is like we are consumed with consumerism and, you know, just distracted by the Kardashians on TV. Like we don't focus on our spiritual selves. And it seems to be something that they want us to do. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. I was going to say the native tribes, they're very spiritual and they always mention people from the stars. Uh, So there is something there. There's really something there. There really is. And um, you know, the, the need to elevate our level of spirituality is important to our survival because uh, if you have that low level of spirituality, you can go to war and use nuclear weapons. You can destroy your planet uh, through environmental neglect and uh, don't see it coming. Don't understand the value of valuing mother earth. And everything around you. So that's the message, really, that, yeah. that they're imparting to us. There was a, an incident here in Canada with this uh, French-Canadian uh, man who was in his 60s, uh, David Hamill, was abducted from British Columbia and brought all the way to Ontario to a property that had a lake. And these entities told them, you need to buy this property. It would take four days to travel that distance that that he had traveled at within fraction of a second. And he did buy the property. Mm -hmm. And they were mentioning to him that the lake in in question was being polluted and that we were, you know, screwing up the planet, which again is a common theme amongst abductees. So this brings me to a point of the threat narrative. I don't believe in a threat narrative because of this reason. I've heard of abduction cases where people get tucked in back into bed. Uh, you know, there seems to be a traumatic experience that takes place when the abduction takes, you know, is happening at first. And you mentioned then you're tranquil when you're with them. It's just that fear comes back when you come back home. Yes. But on the threat narrative, do you, do you think that there's a threat or do you think that these creatures really have our, or these entities have our best you know, interest at heart? Well, I know in deep inside that the ones that I have encountered during my lifetime have our best interest at heart. However, right. they're not all nice. And if you read Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, that book was recently approved by the Department of Defense to be released to the public. The man who ran the, I don't know how you pronounce it, ASWAP program. I guess it is. <laughs> you, you said it as well as I would. So. <laughs> Not the ATIP, but ATIP was the declassified program. The man who ran the, um, the classified program, Lekatsky, I think is, you pronounce his name, Dr. Lekatsky. Um, yeah. You got a great memory, by the way. The fact that you remember everybody's names like that is impressive. I I can't do that. So that's great. I don't remember everybody's name, but this is an important name to remember. That's my attitude. And um, Colm Kelleher and uh, George Knapp wrote this book together. And the information comes from uh, all of the studies that have been done at the Skinwalker Ranch. And the idea that people who went there uh, 
were, it seemed artificially exposed to terror. It just came at them and overwhelmed them. I know what this means. There are highly negative entities there and they attached to these people when they lowered their vibrational frequency by being in a state of terror. And these people left the ranch and went back home and with this attachment. And this attachment uh, created paranormal activity in their homes, uh, black shadowy entities over them and their families at night, poltergeist activity, orbs, but not the kind of orbs that we see with the benevolent entities. These orbs are, were, are created, they're solid and they're created by these negative entities in order to try to mimic the positive. But these blue orbs burn people. These entities that attach make people sick. Right. And it spread. Like the Brazilian case in 1977 uh, with those orbs that were zapping people, making them sick. Yes. Becoming anemic, right? Yeah, well, not just anemic. These people develop... Um, autoimmune disorders, cancer, uh, really bad things, but these are bad entities. Right. That's what they want to do. They survive off fear and loathing. They attach to you by lowering your vibration and they spread through the families. They spread to the neighbors. They spread to the relatives, the neighbors' relatives. They are spreading out and they need to be stopped. And the only way to stop them is by projecting love in their direction. Because if you project love, they can't touch you. Your vibration is too high. And I know this sounds probably like woo-woo or hocus-pocus to people who aren't familiar with all of this. But I have been a student of this and have been doing groundbreaking research for 30 years on this. So I know what I'm talking about. And some people do experience abductions where they say the entities are threatening. That's what I believe that, you know, the gray ones don't seem to be that bad. But yeah, there is some negative ones for sure. In your experience investigating these cases, have you found that most people describe the grays? Or is there a variety of different entities that are being described to you? In MUFON's study, we discovered that the gray entities are the most prevalent and there are very, okay. many different races of greys. You talked about the reptilians. Well, there is a group of, rep, of uh, draconian reptilians and rogue greys who work together. So not all greys are nice. Um, so greys were number one. The human types were number two. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And they're generally quite benevolent. And then there's kind of a tie between three and four, and those are the mantis types and who scare people, but can they have a really frightening appearance with an exoskeleton um, and they tend to disguise themselves <laughs> so that people aren't so frightened. Uh, a lot of people are afraid of them, but other people love, love them. They think they're wonderful, <laughs> it's amazing. And then there are the reptilian types. And so some people say that they have interacted with a nice kind of 
lizard, snakeskin, something like that type of uh, reptilian who they, they claim is nice, but then there is this terrible, uh, terribly negative draconian reptilian type too. And I know that there are negative uh, other types of uh, reptilians as well. The bark brown colored ones that are in human form. Uh, I know that it attached to uh, one man that I worked with and uh, would rake three fingernails down its, his chest and cause deep wounds and uh, just, it, it was demonic. Right. Almost um, like a hatred of our species or something, right? Yes. Yeah. Or, or they feed off our fear. This man was so fearful and he couldn't get help from anywhere. I, I just saw him as a la- last chance because uh, wow. I work privately. Right. And uh, he, he came, he reached out to me seeking help. And uh, his was not a good outcome because he couldn't be reached fast enough. Right. By knowledgeable people. And um, they just consumed him. It was it was really sad, but it was because he was carrying guns. He was firing at them. He was uh, hateful, frightened. He was uh, handcuffing himself to his walls at night. Oh, geez! Trying not to be taken. You know, it was really a, a very bad situation. Right, and it seems weird because some people have these varying levels of abductions, but when you hear about those ones, those ones are terrifying. They're terrible. And these, the benevolent ETs say that they're attempting to keep the, the lower vibrating ones at bay, the negative ones who harm humans, who care little about us. You know, and, and the majority are kind. <laughs> thank goodness. Thank goodness that those others uh, are not uh, the most prevalent because we'd be in really a tough situation. Well, I think even with the the Pentagon, because I've talked about the threat narrative quite a, a bit, and I thought, you know, most of these entities don't seem to mean a threat to us. If they were a threat to us, the damage would already be done by now. They wouldn't be waiting, you know, and having all these sightings and stuff like that. Uh, just out of the blue, we, we'd be done for if they wanted to harm us. But, yes, Absolutely. You know, when you hear about the, and I keep forgetting his name, but that general in Israel that ran the space program for Israel for 30 years saying that there's a federation out there. Mm-hmm. For you as an experiencer, do you think that's like, are you getting validation for all the experiences that you have? Like now that it's leaking out into the, the media a lot more, you feel happy about that at least that information is being released slowly? Yes, and I feel very gratified that it is leaking out slowly and uh, you know, and, and that there is a federation of ETs. I had the opportunity to engage in an experiment with a team of researchers for a period of two years uh, to communicate with a council of ETs and uh, learned to communicate. They gave us a lot of evidence to prove 
who they were and or who they are. And I continue to have contact with them. Uh, my, the team of researchers meets periodically now, um, two or three times a year. And so uh, they're, these are extraordinarily benevolent ETs. They're fifth and sixth dimensional uh, entities who uh, have the technology to come into our environment if they, if they so choose. And, um, and also there are a couple of ninth dimensionals too who are in charge of this quadrant of our galaxy. And they say that we all share one consciousness. It's all about consciousness and that there is one highest consciousness that we think of as God. Okay. And you know, so uh, I see nothing wrong with that message. So they're saying that the consciousness that is out there, the great consciousness, we're part of it. They're part of it as well. So whatever they're up to here is just to elevate us to a higher, like you mentioned, a higher frequency to start paying attention to that. And that seems to be the, what I'm getting out of experiencers. Yeah. How, how does one bring up their level though? Like if, if I wanted to start doing what you're doing, I'm not an experiencer. Mm -hmm. How would somebody do that? Well, let me tell you the advice that I give to people. And especially for these people who are engaging with negative ETs, go to YouTube. You will find guided meditations to elevate consciousness, to elevate your frequency. It comes with frequency raising music. I, I, um, think that a guided meditation is best to start out with and uh, do that every day. And it will eventually raise your vibrational frequency. Do not watch violent movies. Do not use violence in your life. Do not have more than one or two drinks, no more than that, because that uh, decreases your vibrational frequency. Do not use opioids. Gotcha. Those kinds of things. Do not gossip. Don't get into uh, this uh, sort of public energy that that sweeps you in and uh, talks about the bad things that happen to other people. I notice so much of that now. Uh, watch how so-and-so did this to somebody else. And, you know, that kind of thing is not good. Yeah. Cancel culture is kind of going after everybody right now. If you've done anything wrong and it was captured on, on video or audio, everybody's getting canceled. And it's, there's a lot of negativity that is taking place right now. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. There, there is, and, and we need to get beyond that. So we have to condition ourselves. And I'm not saying that it's extraordinarily easy to do this, but I'm saying it is essential. And I'm writing a book now about it's my autobiography and all of the research and work that I've done. It's called Forbidden Knowledge. The Life of a UFO Investigator, Intergenerational Contact Experiencer, and ET Communicator. So uh, it's going to be released soon. 
And uh, I can't wait for that, but it gives all of the information that anyone needs. That's, that's awesome. I mean, like I said, you are the uh, expert on your aunt and uncle's case. And I really wanted the audience to have a chance to uh, listen to that and to most of all, uh, discover you as well. Um, you know, in your experiences, your work, everything that you've done with the community. And like I said, I was nervous this, this morning, uh, I was like, oh, no, Kathleen's going to be on. That's a huge guest for me. And my heart was pounding in my chest. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I'm so nervous. And, of course, having you say yes to coming on UAP Studies, I'm so appreciative of that. I really am, Kathleen. Where could we find your work? Most of it is on Amazon, but is there anywhere else that we can purchase your books? If you live inside the United States, you can purchase my books using PayPal. Um, just go to my website. It's Kathleen with a K dash Martin, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. All of my books are on sale there, autographed copies. And with the nice. ones that I wrote with Stanton Friedman, you'll get his autograph too. And uh, so free articles you can read uh, where I'm going to be speaking this year. If you want to go to a conference and hear me. Uh, so a lot of information is on that website. And again, I thank you so much as just somebody who's into ufology for all the work that you've done, the years that you've done it for, and the exposure that you've done for this subject. Uh, you've, you're an advocate for this, and a lot of people see you as a light at the end of the tunnel for some of their experiences. And, you know, it's great to hear that you're still busy, that you're still active, still taking, still taking care of a lot of people. And you got you got a huge heart. And I, I appreciate your time. Seriously. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Nice to see you again.